Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show here on Faith FM. We've got some interesting things to discuss this morning. Mm-hmm. The issue of, well, China banning children from playing computer games between uh, 10 o'clock at night and 8 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we want to hear from you. What are you doing as a family, for those of you with families, to combat the issue of computer game addiction? Mm. Are you being a parent and doing something constructive about this, something very real about it? Or are you just sort of like, well, whatever the kids want to do? Yeah. I don't like people grow up on all kind of sides of the spectrum. I know for myself, like I was, I made the joke, oh, that sounds like me when I was 15. I had like no restrictions. Like, and I think this applies to well, many. I had no restrictions when I was 15 because I wasn't living at home. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think oh, you're, well, you're, I was living in Europe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was actually, dude, that was the training schedules that I'd do all my exercise during the day and then I'd play PlayStation until like 10 o'clock at night and then, you know, go to sleep. But, you know, it was a bit of a different circumstance. But even like as a, the, in the years preceding that, like as a school kid, like, yeah, just, you know, no restrictions. And I can, I can see very clearly that like that wasn't a good, nor positive, nor helpful thing. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Now, that was interesting. I wasn't expecting expecting that that at that particular point. Caught me a bit off guard. Anyway, so we would love to hear from you as families. uh, What have you done in this space? Mm. Uh, What do you recommend? What mistakes have you made? I can certainly tell you some of the mistakes that we made as a family Mm. uh, with our kids growing up. It was an interesting era because for us this was new technology Mm. that we'd never faced before and so we'd never had the opportunity to sit down and think about it and discuss and even to think about the pitfalls that might come about as a result of it. Mm. Anyway, all right, let's go to text messages and coming through on the text messages, the amalgamation of of man and microchips. (laughs) As amazing as that is, makes me wonder what's next. Mm. Makes me wonder what's next too. Because, you know, with technology, technology is neutral. It can be used for good. Yeah. But what could you do? You, you could seriously mess mess with somebody. Well, I know that, like, they're trying to find solutions like this in the military because they're, mm. they're developing, you know, what's that plane that we've got, the F-22? That's like the one that... 35, isn't it? Whatever. F-35, that, yeah, that's it. Yeah, the old one was the F-22 or something. 18. F-18, yes. The new one is the F, F-35. Um, you know, I've got the inside scoop here. No, not really. I just know some people who are working in that space. And uh, essentially, like, they, they and, and this is public knowledge, is that they're having problems with it because the helmet is so heavy because of the amount of technology that's within the helmet thems- within the helmet itself because they want to give pilots, like, a 360 view and all this stuff. And then if you could find some way to to apply, you know, this microchip technology where it takes signals from the brain and converts it into ooh, wild. Wild stuff. All right, student debt cleared. Great start in their working life. Governments around the world are printing money as if there is no end. Ooh. Are we ready for the world economic research reset just around the corner? Mm. Now, this is something I know a little bit about, and the thing that bothers me about it is that it keeps getting postponed. Yes. And so when you've got a theory that's going around that keeps getting postponed, it's like, hmm, I'm just going to leave it there with a yeah. hmm. Anyway. Um, emojis. The geniuses are at it again. Confusion reigns. <laughs> and then finally, the end. 
uh, presentation. Thanks for clearing the misconceptions about what happens after death. It makes you appreciate how fair and righteous God is. Can't wait till tonight's presentation. Well, me either. Oh, another one coming through right now. Uh, let me see here. Going across to this one. No video games after 10 is a good idea, but no government should make laws on what the family does. So that's uh, Brett's view on it right there. That's actually, that's fair enough. I think, yeah. I think, I think so too. What is taking place is that too few people are actually being parents. Mm. And so when people refuse to be parents, then the government steps in. Mm. Well, and I don't like it. I, I don't like it either way. I just we, don't. We see this in Australia where the things like, you know, the increasing like sugar tax, for example, it's like that is A1, like four children. Yes, that's right. You know, to to make like because they can't make good decisions for themselves, and if you put them in a family situation where they're in, the family is enabling to make the enabling them to make good decisions, well, then you just have to increase the prices of sugar. So we don't allow children to have alcohol. We don't allow children to have cigarettes. Mm. Right mm-hmm. now, because they're destructive to their health. Yes, computer games are destructive to their health. This is the should the government then on that same principle? But this is the thing. This is where so here's the ideal. The ideal is that you don't have a law against children consuming alcohol because no parent would allow their children to consume alcohol. Mm. That's your ideal right there. Mm. The reason that the government has a law on it is because of bad parents. But you know what else is destructive for kids' health? Like you know, TV. Yes. You know, social media. Like yes. there's so, especially we've talked about previously, you know, the the, uh, the marketing in social media and how it's all targeted towards sucking See, I children wonder, in. I wonder how much of a difference it would make in China, and maybe we should do it in China as the experiment because they're the totalitarian, you know, yeah, they can get away with it, yeah. dictatorship that yeah. just does whatever they feel like. If we actually banned children from screens, yeah, but this is between the, ten and this eight. is the thing. It's like how much do we um, limit? freedom you know for the purpose of and how much does the government how much does the government become a parent yes because and then and that's the thing the the real question ask is do you want the government being a parent to your children and we've talked about particularly last week with the the law that was just passed in washington dc well that they're trying to pass about you know vaccines for children and not notifying it's like do we want a government like that well that's a different kettle of fish because that one is the, uh, a law that requires the child to lie to their parents, pretty much. Yeah, for sure. So that's pretty full on. But yeah, but you're also like, remember how we're talking, you know, kids are smart. Yes. Then we're going to create create circumstances where we restrict child freedom so much that, like, then you get to a point where then but, they start lying But then and again, then again, you know, I, I look at these laws and I say, well, you know, the law against uh, children consuming alcohol, that never affected me. Yeah. I don't care. Exactly. It has no effect on me whatsoever at all. And this law in China would also have had no effect on me whatsoever at all. But it's a great excuse for them to switch the cameras on in your house. Yes. And this is the (laughs) the thing. China's pretty hectic like that already because they have just got sort of cameras everywhere, every Mm. street, everywhere you walk, everywhere you drive, everywhere you go, you're being watched by cameras. They have facial recognition, sunglasses that their police are using. And now not only... You, you can't even go into your house and escape cameras. Yeah, wow. They just every every screen that you have is a camera looking at you. Mm. Uh, we have the same technology here. It's just we're told that it's not switched on. Yeah, and we trust that 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. Okay, so computer games. Many years ago, I loved playing with a game called The Haunted House. Very mild in comparison with today. But when I decided to stop due to what God says, I was attacked by a demon who tried to choke me. Whew, never played again. That's a very powerful uh, testimony right there. Thank you so much for sharing. And the Global Reset, praise God that he's holding it back. God's people are not ready. And I think that's a very, very valid. And it depends how you define the Global Reset, but that is absolutely what the Bible describes right there, that God is doing, that he is holding these things back uh, because mm. you know he wants to see as many people saved as possible. Yeah. And now is your opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ. So let's make sure that we jump in there and do it. 100%. I agree. All right. Fantastic stuff. Let's uh, talk about our Bible study. You're listening to Faith FM, positively different radio. Second Samuel chapter 12 and verse 13 is where we're picking up the story. Yes, this is where we got to yesterday. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's a pretty full-on confession because basically at the very least what David is saying is, I'm a, mur- I'm a murderer. Mm. You know, that's pretty much the, is there, a, is there a sin worse than murder? I'm not sure that there is. I mean, it's pretty much the top, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, you know, uh, as Jesus says, like, you know, interfering with the life of a child. Yes. Well, you may as well throw yes. tire millstone around your neck and be thrown into That's the sea. That's worse than murder. I'll, but, go, I'll, I'll go with that. But, you know, we at the same time, you have to say, like, oh, sin is sin. But then, Any sin can keep you out of heaven. Yeah, but, there but are then the civil penalty. And, and I, I think... Consequences are yeah, going to be different for every sin. I think of, you know, the circumstance of, you know, the world we live in today and also in the world of Israel's time. In this ancient Israel, in David's time, it's like, you know, and you read, uh, what you know, what what laws are given in the Torah and whatnot. It's like murder was a sin that had the punishment of death. Mm. Rape and child molestation were sins that had the punishment of death. Yes. So these, like, these are these are top level sins. Yeah. He's he's not mucking around. This is Psalms fifty one verse four. Ooh, okay. So Psalms fifty one, and I want everybody to read Psalms fifty one. If not, memorize it. Because this is David's psalm of confession. This mm. is where David, he's just heartbroken. Mm. He comes to God, and this is and this is where you see David receiving grace, and this should be our attitude, <coughs> our attitude towards sin when we sin as well. Mm. It says here, Psalm 51 and verse 4, Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Okay, so is David making any excuses here? Is he being like Saul? We talked about Saul yesterday. It's like, oh, yeah, the people did. Is he saying, you know, well, Bathsheba, you know, she seduced me, and she was flashing on top of the roof. And And this is like, and this is the thing, like, if she was, which people kind of make a claim that she could have been. Makes a difference as far as David goes yeah but you know you would find makes a difference for Bathsheba because then she's a sinner yeah but here it's just David is a one taking point like saying this is my fault that's right Mm. he is not blaming anybody else he's not saying oh you know this woman that uh that you created that was so beautiful that was on the rooftop and the woman's not turning around saying well you know there was this serpent that tempted me and so you know i 
Nobody's blaming anybody else here. Yeah. It's interesting too, like in terms of, he. I love what verse 6, it says, but you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. He's, he's essentially saying, I even knew better. Of course. Like he's saying, like because he, he started, he's like, for I'm born a sinner, from when my mother conceived me, I was a sinner. I'm, you know, bent towards this, but... You've been teaching me since I've been a child. Like, I've had all these experiences with you, knowing that you're a loving and a just God, one that helps me to overcome sin, yet I sinned anyway. Like, this is A1, like, I rebelled against you, God. Like, this isn't, this isn't ignorant. This isn't anything. No, like, I'm, I am the problem. And I feel like this is a really healthy thing because from here, and as we'll read, as we continue to read Psalm 51, then he can find healing. You know, first, admitting, admitting. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. All right. <clears throat> Let's continue on in this particular story here. Um, and we're going we're gonna to take up the issue of forgiven and forgotten. Mm. Is David's sin forgotten? Because, you know, David had pronounced judgment on himself, hadn't he? Mm. He's like, oh, this man's worthy of death. He needs to repay it four times over. And then, you know, he walks straight into it. Um. Let's let's go back to Second Samuel twelve and verse thirteen. Mm-hmm. David says, "I've sinned." What does Nathan say? Nathan p- replied, "Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die from this sin." Okay. So when David confesses his sin, how long does it take for God to forgive him? Immediately. Does God say, okay, you've got to do penance and you're going to nope. be forgiven? Does God say you've got to wait until your son dies and then you're going to be forgiven? Nope. Does God say that you need to feel bad about this for the next six months and then you'll be forgiven? Mm, nope. How quickly does that forgiveness come? Immediately. What about the consequences? When he's forgiven of that, do the consequences disappear? Well, we continue reading in verse 14. Mm. And the Bible says... Nevertheless, because you have shown oh, utter nevertheless, contempt. Nevertheless, Ooh, nevertheless. As soon as you hit that word right there, yeah, here comes the consequences. Nevertheless, um, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Ooh. Which do you think it would have been easier for David to handle if God had said, you're going to die, or when God said, your child will die? Probably the child dying as a parent i'm just going to say this the easiest thing would be for god to say you'll die mm. um there would be nothing harder than the experience that david goes through after this because the child is born and the child is not well and well let's just let's just read on and see where it goes yeah in verse 15 says after uh, after nathan returned to his home the lord sent a deadly illness to the child um, of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering and realized what had happened, is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. Yeah, it's an interesting story because David understands the mercies of God. Mm. 
And so he prays and fasts the entire time that the child is alive. Mm. And the entire time that the child is alive, the child is not well. So the born is the child is born unwell. And of course, you know, this is not an unusual circumstance, I guess, even today. We find that children are born with all kinds of different mm. uh, diseases from time to time. The child is born unwell and he prays day and night. Mm. And so, you know, I think his staff at this particular time would have been quite puzzled because when the child dies, he's like, okay. And then he just goes and worships in the temple and comes back and sits down and has some food and gets himself cleaned up and gets back together. Why do you think it was that David appeared to not listen to reason while the child was alive, but once, once, his, once his son died, he was like, well, let's get back on with life. Um, yeah, actually, there's like a similar circumstance that happens, you know, while everything's going on with like Absalom and whatnot, which is essentially like David is like, hey, you know, whilst there's a chance, like I'm going to pray. But yes. he, he realizes that judgment, by the time the child has died, he realizes that judgment has passed. Like that's right. It's there's, there's nothing more there's you can do. Nothing you can change. It's like okay. Previous to that point, there is things you can do. Yeah. After that point, there's not. And and it's oh, this is a really really good object lesson actually, um, because it's it's kind of like well, David in sinning is not acting like Christ, but it's similar to Christ in the sense that Christ always intercedes, and that's what David is trying to do here. He's trying to intercede on his son's behalf by by praying and fasting and and trying to um, yeah basically relinquish the circumstance that have come come upon his child, um, but ultimately like it fails and from there it's like okay well you know what what can what can be done and moved on and I see that it's like similarly to the way that Christ intercedes for us now it's a different circumstance in the fact that we are the ones who are rebellious not Christ. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God, yet in his amazing love, taking responsibility for our sins, he is consistently interceding for us. And the thing that changes that circumstance is our decision. Um, yet in the end, like if we don't choose him and we get destroyed, like what more can be done? You know, mm. Christ mm. is no, like in the end, like when we are in the new Jerusalem, in heaven, like on the other side of eternity and whatnot, like, there is no more intercessory work because people have made their decision. And for David here, he's kind of going through a microcosm of that situation where he sees like judgment has passed. You know, there's no more decisions to be made. Like this is it. And he moves on and he yep. goes back to ruling his kingdom. Yep. Mm, interesting. It is. It is. You're listening to the breakfast show podcast on faith FM. Positively different. Okay. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 12, where did we get up to? Let's pick up the story um, and keep reading. Let's read, I believe we got to verse 21. It says, His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now the child is dead and you have stopped your mourning and you are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when the child is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. There you go. Mm. He uh, and, and that finishes out that passage right there? Mm. Yes. Oh, there's just one. Oh, actually, mm. there's one more little section of this Okay, let's passage. read it. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, 
and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. Okay, so we often, we, we, we typically refer to Solomon as being Solomon, but yeah, Jedidiah was his other name. Yes, and he was the son of Bathsheba, of yes. all of the wives. You know, David has a bunch he's of He's not the oldest people. son or anything like that. He's not the firstborn son. No. Uh, he's the son that God chooses. Mm. He's the only son of David's that was named by God. Yeah, wow. And then we have, you know, further on in David's life, there are a couple of other sons who are much older. And when David is passing away, they're like, well, you know, we should be sitting on the throne. And they try to usurp the throne. Absalom tries to start a civil war over it. Mm. Adonijah tries to do it while David is on his deathbed. And David has to act very, very decisively to abdicate his throne and pass it to Solomon to ensure that Solomon actually uh, gets the gets the throne. Oh, man. Like, literally the next chapter, well, you've got the, you know, the capture of Rabah, and then the next chapter is, like, it begins the dysfunctionality of David's life. Yep. Like, chapter 13 is about, you know, the, the Tamar, you know, incident. Yes. Uh, and Amnon. And it's just, you see from here, the words of God just really ringing true. As because they see the example of David, their father, and they just, you know, morality and restraint goes out the door. Mm. It's, oh, it's so tough. And, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, when I read it in my translation, it says, you know, Nathan says, you know, you've give, given great opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Mm. And so often, you know, people have committed great sin and committed immorality and, and so forth and have said, well, you know, well, David did it and he still got called a man after God's own heart. <sighs> yeah, I've heard that so many times. And it's so silly. And it's just a fulfillment of what Nathan was saying right there. You know, you've given great opportunity for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Mm. And yet it is at the same time an incredible example of God's grace and the power of God's grace to save a person. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's go to, where are we going to go head to next? Let's go to, uh, let's go to Psalms. Psalm chapter 51. I'm going to flick back over there. And there's a passage there that we're going to look at uh, from verses 7 to 12. We haven't read these verses yet, so let's spend a little bit of time contemplating these verses Mm. and find out what they have to do with uh, this whole situation. In verse 7 it says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. You uh, Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew my loyal spirit within me. Um, do not banish me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Okay, there's an interesting phrase right there, particularly in verse 11 that I want to focus in on. It says, where it cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why mm. is David asking this? What What is David in danger of actually doing by sinning and what danger does he recognize? Oh, this is really cool. So basically, like, remember with Saul? Yes. How, like, when Saul ultimately didn't repent? Yes. And how Saul ended up over the next years to the point where he's just, like, completely, like, demon possessed and goes like, over to the dark side like fully like and is you know the only way he can be calmed is if david comes and plays him music because he's so tormented um by the fact that he's kind of really let sin into his life 
And to the point where he actually completely rejects God and goes and asks Satan mm. for advice. Yeah, wow. You know, that's pretty full on. Yeah. Uh, this is somebody who has committed the unpardonable sin while they are still alive. Mm. And that's a really good contrast to draw right there. And I think that what David is recognizing is that this is the this is the path of sin. This is where sin leads. Mm. And then when you go down the path of sin, you can reach a point where the Holy Spirit can no longer reach you. Mm. And when the Holy Spirit can no longer reach you, there is nothing. There is nothing that will stop you from doing something evil. Yeah. And there is there is no end to how far you will go into the depths of evil. Mm. You know, Saul was somebody who started out as a prophet. Yeah. A lot of people forget that, but he had the gift of prophecy at the beginning of his at the beginning of his reign. He, he was given the gift of prophecy. And so he could have been both a prophet and a king. The only one. Mm. Or one of the only ones. Now David and Solomon were both prophets as well. But one of the only ones who would be would be both a prophet and a king. He had that opportunity. And yet because of sin, his conscience became dull. You see, the Holy Spirit speaks to our conscience, but it's a rule of the mind that what is persistently ignored, the mind ceases to recognize. Yeah. So if you are living in an area, so a friend of mine lived in an area where they used to uh, grow turf, grass, Mm. lots of turf farms. And the turf farmers, their favorite thing to do was to get liquid manure. So this is basically poo mixed with water, and then run it through their sprinklers. Yeah. And so you can imagine what the whole countryside smelt like when they would start, you know, these massive, massive sprinklers just firing this stuff out over these um, these turf farms. Mm. And I'd turn up at Steve's place and I'd be like, Steve, how can you live here? It stinks. And Steve would be like, what smell? <laughs> I don't smell anything. Yeah, well. Because it's the way the mind works. What the mind persistently refuses to acknowledge, the mind ceases to be able to acknowledge. I think particularly when you put yourself in a situation where you're really close to this, like where you're really close to righteousness, and the reality for Saul, and I think this is the reality for many Christians today, and it kind of answers the question, well, why do Christians do such bad things? It's because they're confronted by their sin consistently. And if they don't address it and deal with it, like they're the first people to fall. Like, and so yeah, I think it's it's just this is a huge call for us. It is just when God confronts us with our sin, as David's been confronted. Let's go back to Him. Come back to the Lamb of God. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. But now it is time for. Question of the day. Mixed question is: Why do you or Faith FM call Babylon call Babylon in Revelation a religious confusion? Babylon was apostate Jerusalem, the city wherein our Lord was crucified. Okay, there's a very simple answer for this one, um, and the answer is that uh, there is no verse in the Bible that says that Babylon was apostate Jerusalem. Mm. Just that verse doesn't exist. So if the verse doesn't exist, then why would we do that? Now, maybe maybe somebody can find a verse that says this. Maybe they know something I don't. Mm. 
Um, but this is an idea that was originally put forward, uh, if my history is correct, uh, by the Jesuit priest uh, Louis de Alcazar, mm-hmm. who invented the theory in, uh, well, he pub- was published in about 1609, that all prophecy had been fulfilled by the end of the Roman Empire. Mm. And so prophecy became irrelevant. It was all applied to the distant past. It's not relevant to the present. And his reason for doing so was because the Protestant churches, the protesting churches of that time, had recognized, as everybody had up until that particular point in history, that prophecy was fulfilled in the past, it was being fulfilled in the present, it would be fulfilled in the future, and that Rome played a significant role in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, uh, the Church of Rome, I should say. And so the Church of Rome is like, okay, we've got to solve this because how are we going to get the Protestant churches back to us unless we can actually solve what's going on here? And so they actually commissioned the Jesuits to come up with alternative theories. One Jesuit said, Louis de Alcazar, everything happened in the distant past. And you have mm. some Protestants who accepted that. It's a lot harder because it is very, very thin on Scripture. Then you had another Jesuit, uh, Francisco Ribera, who came up with the opposite thesis, and he said, no, 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 everything's fulfilled in a seven-year period at the end of time. Once again, very challenging to accept, and it took you know, centuries. It literally took centuries before any Protestant ever gave either of these uh, interpretations any level of credibility. Uh, it's really only been in the last probably 120 years or so that futurism has had any significant traction at all. Uh, Predatorism has probably had a little bit more traction in Protestantism than that uh, throughout the years, but has waned, particularly in the United States, under the influences of futurism. But the standard Protestant position of historicism is almost forgotten these days, but that's the biblical position. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, uh, there's a phrase here, uh, Jerusalem, the city wherein our Lord was crucified. That's a quote from the Bible. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, let's read that verse and let's see what it says. It's found in Revelation chapter 11. And you will find it in verse 8. The Bible says, Their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, and wherein our Lord was crucified. So that's, that's the verse where that passage comes from. So here you are looking for a city that is called Sodom, you are looking for a city that is called Egypt and you are looking for a city that is called Jerusalem. You are looking for a city that has those three names. Now, clearly, Babylon is not mentioned here anywhere in this particular passage, um, but there is a city here that has three different names. Now, that city does not exist. There is no city that has ever existed that has had those three names. Egypt is has only ever been the name of a nation. It's never been the name of a city. And there's never been a city that has shared the names of Jerusalem or Sodom together. Mm-hmm. And so when you have something, when you have a situation like this, clearly you are looking at Bible symbolism. Mm. If you'd like to know more about that Bible symbolism and what it symbolizes, well, we're out of time for now. Just send us another question of the day through. And maybe we'll work our way through Revelation chapter 11. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.